You are listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies and the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu forward slash Ellison Center. I'm very pleased that we have Professor Glennis Young with us. Uh, she is a uh, professor both in the Jackson School and also Department of History, has written books and articles on revolutionary uh, Soviet Union, early years of the revolution, uh, and, uh, and also a uh, comprehensive textbook about the communist experience in the entire world. So she's extremely knowledgeable, and uh, like all of us who have these area expertise have been following the impact of uh, the Trump administration's policies on her area of interest, uh, which is uh, contemporary Russia. So I'm very pleased that Glennis is with us. Good afternoon or early evening, everyone. And thank you very much to Rashad for the kind introduction and for giving me the opportunity to speak to you in this Trump uh, in the World uh, series. Can everybody hear me? Great. Okay. Uh, so the title of my presentation today is Putin's Russia, a Historian's View. And I, what I call the 64,000 ruble question is before you. How did the promise of Russia's democratic transition launched with the end of Soviet communism in 1991 result in another authoritarianism centered around the personal power of Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin president of the Russian Federation. So this is the main question that I want to uh, examine today. It's a huge question. It's one that I can't definitively answer. And in fact, in my mind, all of the existing explanations are interesting yet deficient. It's important to consider this question because how we think of uh, the Russia Russian political system today uh, matters uh, for the foreign policy that Donald, President Donald Trump uh, is creating. So what I'm going to do today is to, after placing Putin himself in historical context, introduce you to three major approaches to defining the political system that exists in Russia today. I'm not only going to introduce you, introduce you to them, I'm going to critique them, critically examine them. And in particular, I'm going to think about and ask you to think about with me how they make use of the Russian past. So that's the agenda uh, for today, the basic outline of, of the structure of, of the essay of the, the talk. So here's Putin in 2000, a relatively obscure political figure to most Russians, at his inauguration as president of the Russian Federation. Here, in fact, we see Putin with Boris Yeltsin, 
the preceding president, probably some uh, a figure all of you are to some extent familiar with at the inauguration. True, Putin wasn't completely unknown. Yeltsin had, in fact, appointed him acting prime minister in 1998 and then acting president in 2000. He was certainly, I'm referring to Putin here, he was certainly not unknown in St. Petersburg, formerly Leningrad in the Soviet period. After Putin returned to Leningrad in 1990 from Dresden in East Germany, where he had been a KGB agent from 1985 to 1990, he became a figure in city politics. In May 1990, for example, he was appointed as Mayor Anatoly Subchak's advisor on international affairs. And a year later in 1991, also the year in which the Soviet Union ceased to be, Putin became chair of the St. Petersburg Mayor's Office Committee for External Relations. In 1994, he became deputy mayor under Mayor Anatoly Sobchak. So these might sound to you like mid-level, not all that glamorous posts, but they were not. All of these positions to the contrary, allowed him to make crucial economic decisions during the years in which the Russian economy was still undergoing a profound transformation from a command economy in which a capitalist market was suppressed to a market economy of private ownership and private property. Putin's behavior, the deals he oversaw that involved foreign companies such as the German company Siemens, was the subject of investigations for corruption, such as money laundering, so, so much in the news today, by the St. Petersburg legislature. In St. Petersburg, then, Putin was not an unknown figure. But then, seemingly, hard times came to Putin. In 1996, his boss, Mayor Anatoly Sobchak, lost his bid for re-election. Putin, subject of criminal investigation and jobless, would seem to have had poor future prospects. But instead, he moved from his hometown of Leningrad to Moscow, where he held increasingly important positions and in fact headed the KGB's successor, the FSB, in 1998. Still, by the time that Putin became prime minister, acting prime minister in 1999, acting president from New Year's Eve 1999 to May 2000, and then president, he was still unfamiliar, so unfamiliar to most Russians that he had to write his autobiography called First Person, which was a series of interviews with Russian journalists and become the subject of a documentary. He had to make himself known to the Russian population. And of course, he had to decide how he would present himself in making himself known to the Russian population. Putin's transformation from former KGB expat lieutenant, 
colonel, to St. Petersburg politician and bureaucrat, to Moscow KGB slash FSB head, and presidential administration official, occurred during the turbulent 1990s. In form and from a distance, Russia was a market economy attracting foreign investors where ordinary Russians eventually could buy products that were almost always in short supply or unavailable during late Soviet times. I spent much of the years of 1986 to 1988 in the Soviet Union and in Leningrad in particular, so I'm very familiar with uh, what's been called an economy of shortages, uh, a, uh, an economy in which it's hard to buy even very basic things like milk and cheese, which over the time that I was there in the academic year of 1987 to 1988, for example, uh, became harder and harder to obtain. It was a good day if I could walk across the street from the dorm where I lived with other Soviet students and, and other Western scholars and actually buy milk, for instance. So when I went back for the first time to um, Russia, to the Russian Federation in 1997, I was just stunned and overwhelmed by the things that I could buy uh, so easily that I had previously been only able to dream about, things like carbonated water that didn't taste like lead, and toilet paper. In practice, the Russian economy was not one in which the untrammeled market decided prices and business deals. Economic privatization went hand in hand with the amassing of great wealth by former communists and KGB officials, with state officials like Putin in St. Petersburg, giving monopolies to some of his personal friends, people, in some cases, people he had known since childhood, with money made from exporting Russia's natural resources being laundered in banks around the world, including in the United States, and with Russian people paying higher prices and sometimes going hungry because food wasn't available to buy. And, I might add, with Russians in St. Petersburg suffering from crumbling and sometimes deadly infrastructure when poorly maintained buildings actually had pieces fall off of them and kill passers-by, in rare cases. In form and from a distance, Russia was a quote-unquote democracy in which elections determined not only the president of the Russian Federation, but the laws that obtained in the Russian Federation, and the governors who headed Russia's regions. In practice, Russia was, at best, a quasi-democracy in which the money of oligarchs bought elections. Elected officials used executive prerogatives to amass wealth and suppress critics Criminal investigations of corrupt officials such as Putin were dropped, and in general, understandings mattered more than laws. The Russian word for that is panyatya. These characteristics, characterizations, what I've just said, 
are to some extent simplified and hence distorted, of course. But there's no doubt that by the time Putin became president in 2000, illiberal, authoritarian, non-democratic, and state capitalist trends had already developed and made the question of who is this Putin incredibly important. Among the questions of political structure that Putin and others would have to resolve were those concerning the Russian Federation itself. So let's take a look at this map so that Russia is not an abstraction to you. The Russian Federation, what you see in white pictured before you, the main successor state to, to the Soviet Union still stretches over 11 time zones, from the Baltic Sea in the northwest to the Pacific Ocean in the east. It comprises nine federal districts and six types of federal subjects. By that are meant other units of geopolitical organization, some of which have Russian names I wouldn't expect you to remember, but I mention them here just so you get a sense of the complexity of the units that comprise the Russian Federation. So those geopolitical units are republics, cries, that, that's another word in Russian for region. <coughs> another Russian word for region called the oblast, three federal cities, one autonomous oblast, and one autonomous region of still another kind. Russia's size, no longer one-sixth of the world's surface that it was during Soviet times, but still huge, its climatic diversity, its harsh winters, its declining population, its emptying villages and rural sectors that you may have written, read about in the New York Times, its rust belts of steel and armament factories, just to name a few elements, make governing the country very, very challenging. There is also the ethnic and ethnatorial issue. Some of the population is not ethnically Russian at all. The Orthodox Church has undergone a tremendous resurgence, but the Russian Federation still encompasses tremendous religious diversity. Muslims, non-Orthodox Christians, Jews, and even Buddhists, just to give a few examples of non-Russian Orthodox who live in the Russian Federation. Much of Putin's support, or his base, lies in regions outside of Moscow, or in what the former NPR journalist Anne Garrels, for example, calls Putin country. But what actually is the political system that Putin and his loyal lieutenants have created? And a certain percentage of Russia's citizens still support despite the fact that, yes, there is a growing opposition movement uh, led by Alexei Navalny, which is popular among 
other Russians. And there certainly are challengers to, to Putin for the next presidential election. And what do the defining elements of this political system have to do, if anything, with the Russian and Soviet past? So today we're going to examine three basic characterizations of the Russian political system. All of them, and others that I won't examine directly here, such as Russia as a mafia state, a phrase you may have heard, have been applied to many other cases besides Russia. The first is managed democracy, a concept that was first advanced by Walter Lippmann in 1920, almost 100 years ago, and has since been applied to other political systems, even rather recently, by the Princeton political theorist Sheldon Wallen to the United States. Moreover, one of the Kremlin's own political theorists, Gleb Pavlovsky, has used it to describe the contemporary Russian political system. We're going to look at this concept more in depth in terms of its constituent elements. And as I mentioned, we'll also subject it to critique, enumerating its strengths and weaknesses. But for now, let me give you a quick definition a basic de definition of managed democracy. This is a hybrid form in which democratic processes or nominally democratic processes such as elections coexist with authoritarian political practices such as the silencing of a political of a critical press and political violence to to stifle stifle dissent and opposition. The second characterization that we're going to examine critically in terms of the contemporary Russian political system is a kleptocracy. You might know that kleptocracy means rule by thieves. And this concept has been applied to Russia by the political scientist Karen DeWisha. What she means by rule by thieves in relationship to Russia and Putin is that Russia's authoritarian political structure can be thought of as a kind of tribute system, a kind of, as she puts it, closely knit cabal. Notice the nefarious association there in the world cabal in which Putin presides over the trading of political and economic privileges in return for political loyalty. That's the those are the fundamental terms of what you might think of as the informal contract system of this political cabal or kleptocracy and tribute system. The roots of this certainly predate the Wisha has maintained Putin's becoming president in 2000. So the third approach we'll examine in thinking about contemporary Russian authoritarianism in historical perspective, and in which we assume this contemporary Russian authoritarianism to be an evolving, not a static phenomenon, is this. I'm going to suggest that we think of it as a phase 
within a much longer revolutionary process that began in the mid-1980s when Mikhail Gorbachev became general secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. This represents my own way of thinking about the end of the Soviet Union and the related but separate end of Soviet communism, as well as the political development of the Russian Federation since 1991. 1991, the year of what is often called the Soviet collapse, and technology willing, you'll see Putin refer to it in that way in the short video that I'm going to show you, or hopefully show you, was a year of dramatic political and social rupture, I want to suggest, akin to 1789 during the French Revolution, 1911 in the Qing Empire, or 1917 in the Russian Empire. And just as all those revolutions that you may have learned about in other courses were processes encompassing distinct but related phases and decades, so too was what I call the Soviet Social Revolution. The French Revolution that brought the invention of modern political practices essentially essential to democracy had its Napoleonic phase and its restoration. So why would we then expect the introduction of some democratic processes such as elections in the Russian Federation not to be followed by increasingly authoritarian political developments? So after more on Putin, I'll introduce uh, him to you a bit and the so-called transition from Yeltsin to Putin, we're gonna examine each of these characterizations. Again, they are managed democracy, kleptocracy, and revolutionary consolidation in a broader Soviet social revolution in greater depth. In particular, I wanna look closely and critically at how each characterization uses the Russian and Soviet past, and I'll point out when, to my mind, the first two approaches uh, do so in too simplistic and reflexive a way. And we'll end with, I'll end with taking your questions. So that's the game plan um, for today. So first, Putin. When you hear the name of Putin, what do you think of? I'm looking for direct responses here. Anything? Any words that come to mind when you hear the word Putin? I, I didn't, I, so, louder? War criminal. Okay, <laughs> war criminal, what else? Rich. What was that? Rich. Rich, yeah. Macho. Macho. And I'm kind of surprised, in fact, that nobody just said Trump. <laughs> anyway, Putin is so much in the news these days, both as leader of a major country and in relationship to the Trump investigation, 
that it can be hard for us to think of him in relationship to the Russian and Soviet past. But it's crucial to do so if we want to understand the relationship of that past to the political system that to some extent he has created. So here goes ways of approaching the question that was on everyone's mind in 2000 when Putin became president of the Russian Federation. Who is he? By that concretely was meant, is he real, has he really broken with the communist past? Is he really a Democrat? Is he really for market reforms? Uh, and then we'll look briefly at themes in Putin's bi autobiography, which I've mentioned uh, is called First Person. And finally, we'll look at and critique a scholarly approach to Putin that conceives of him as really comprising about six different personae. So I could give an entire presentation or really a series of presentations on Putin in historical context. This is going to be regrettably brief. Born seven years after World War II ended in 1952 in Leningrad, he was the son of a father who joined the Soviet Navy and who worked in a factory. During World War II, Putin's father was in the Soviet secret police. Uh, he worked in or fought in, I should say, demolition battalions behind German lines. Putin's mother was uh, also a factory worker with a peasant background. Putin's view of Soviet communism and the world was shaped by the cult of what in the Soviet Union is not called World War II, but is instead called the Great Patriotic War. That is, Putin was taught that the war was the Soviet system's Armageddon. It was the Soviet system's ultimate test and the Soviet, that the Soviet Union had been able to defeat Nazi Germany because of the wise guidance of the Communist Party that enabled the heroic sacrifice and unity of the Soviet people. The Leningrad that Putin grew up in bore the scars of war. His father's body was literally scarred. He was disabled as the result of a war injury. Putin's parents have lived through the nearly 900-day siege of the city when the only escape route from German near-encirclement near of the city in which the Bolshevik Revolution began was over frozen Lake Ladoga to the north. This was also uh, a nearly 900-day siege in which about 670,000 Leningraders died, including Putin's brother, who died of, one of his brothers who died of diphtheria. The city's buildings, the, the Leningrad that Putin grew up in, that is, still had marks from German, German shells, and a few do to this day even in the central St. Petersburg of canals and stunning architecture. 
By all accounts, there was nothing stunning, though, about Putin's rough neighborhood or the communal apartment in which he and his parents grew up in. By communal, I mean that there might have been four to six families who each had their own room or two within this larger apartment, but who shared kitchen and bathroom facilities. Putin didn't live in poverty, though. And the fact that his parents had a telephone and a car, very rare uh, in the late Stalin and post-Stalin years, suggests that his father may still have been working for Soviet intelligence services even after World War II. Putin, let's call him by his first name, first more formally Vladimir, and then uh, diminutives of increasing intimacy, Volodya Vova, spent a lot of time on the streets, was known for his love of judo, and was not much of a student at first. By the time he was 16 years old, so that would have been 1968, and that was a year of great significance in Soviet history and world history because it was the year, among other things, in which the Soviet Union invaded Czechoslovakia and dissent emerged in the Soviet Union. Putin's belief in the bedrock institutions of the Soviet regime could not have been firmer. How firm, you might ask? How firm at the very time that Premier Leonid Brezhnev, leader of the Soviet Union, was cracking down on opposition. Well, at that very time, and in that very year, 1968, Putin volunteered to join the KGB. Told when he needed to acquire a law degree and that he would need to be, quote unquote, selected to join that institution, he did indeed graduate from the law faculty of Leningrad State University. What Putin was up to from about 1975 to 1985 is not all that clear to his biographers. That is, during the early 1980s, he might have been an undercover KGB agent in West Germany. From 1985 to 1990, we certainly know, he was an official KGB agent in East Germany. His post was not very glamorous. He wasn't even in East Berlin. Instead, his post was the not-so-glamorous, war-ravaged city of Dresden. That was his vantage point for experiencing the collapse of Soviet systems in East Europe. So he was in Dresden when the Berlin Wall fell in November of 1989. He was in Dresden when he was learning from afar about the destabilizing consequences of Gorbachev's reforms in the Soviet Union. When he returned to Leningrad in 1990, he was assigned by the KGB to Leningrad State University where he crossed paths with his former law professor, Anatoly Sobchak, later chair of the city council and mayor, and also, incidentally, Putin's former teacher. 
perhaps by chance, which I tend to doubt, or perhaps as part of a KGB strategy to capture, if slowly, the institutions of Russia's emerging democracy, Sobchak chose Putin to be his top deputy when he was mayor. So let's think about what these details mean. Putin was making crucial economic and political decisions during the economic depression of the early post-Soviet years. I'm talking in particular about the period roughly between 1991 and 1995 or 6. He was doing this in a city, formerly Leningrad, now again St. Petersburg, in which in the early 1990s people were going hungry as food was disappearing from the shelves in the tatters of a command economy, and pay was often through barter. I mentioned earlier the Putin kleptocratic cabal. The roots of the Putin kleptocratic cabal go back to the early 1990s, 1990s in St. Petersburg. But lest we write recent history in, in too inevitable a fashion, it should be noted that in 1996, at age 43, Putin was unemployed when Sobchak lost his bid to be reelected. Once again, whether by chance or design, Putin more than landed on his feet, this time in Moscow. There, through connections, he held a number of, present, of positions in the presidential administration, what one scholar has aptly described as the successor to the old Soviet Central Party apparatus. And Boris Yeltsin named him head of the uh, FSB, successor to the KGB, in 1998. So this brings us to a crucial point about Putin and Putin's Russia. There was tremendous continuity in personal networks from pre-Soviet uh, collapse and early post-Soviet days in the major institutional structures of the Russian Federation. Despite this continuity, with the key example being the institutions with which Putin was most closely associated, the KGB or FSB, Putin and his media handlers sought to fashion him as a leader for the new political moment writ large. So in the interviews that comprise the autobiography, First Person, Putin portrayed himself as a grateful beneficiary of the Soviet system, as having risen from the streets of Leningrad to graduate from prestigious Leningrad State University, while making sure to quell doubts about his disavowal of communist ideology and his commitment to democracy. Yes, he, he made clear he had been committed to Soviet values and to the Soviet project, such as industrial modernization and great power status, that Stalin's building of socialism, victory in World War II, 
and becoming an, an atomic power in 1949 had brought the Soviet Union. He presented his joining of the KGB as an act of patriotic duty to the Soviet Union. One topic that he did not avoid in first person, the, the cover of which you see in the lower right-hand corner, was the Soviet collapse. He acknowledged the disorientation he felt when he realized that the USSR would not use Soviet troops to maintain the East German regime. And he diagnosed the metamorphosis of Gorbachev's reforms into the collapse of the system as a paralysis of power. Reading not too much between the lines, one finds inklings of a determination to avenge his personal disorientation and recapture the institutional stability of the pre-reform Soviet system, if in non-communist form. So I want to now show you this video, which I, it's very short, under a minute, but I think quite revealing. Thanks for your patience with the audio, but I think that's a very um, important video to see, although short, because it, you see the emotion on Putin's face when he talks about the collapse of the Soviet Union, and that even Putin, articulate as he is in most situations, is seemingly at a loss uh, for words. So again, we're talking about the question here, who is Vladimir Putin? Another way to think of him is following the work of two observers of Russia as a composite of six different personae. The statist, whose goal was to restore Russian state power and state unity, history man, a political figure who championed Russian czars, sought to emulate them, especially those who had expanded the Russian Empire and, def and defended the Russian Empire against foreign threats. The survivalists, so the story goes here that Putin, as the only surviving child of parents who made it through the siege of Leningrad, uh, was talented at helping Russia survive incipient catastrophes. Putin as an outsider. I'm drawing here on some writings of Stephen Kotkin, who's part of whose book Armageddon Averted you read. Outsider in the sense that Putin was not a Muscovite, not even really a standard figure in the Soviet bureaucratic apparatus or a standard KGB officer. But, but something always of a figure on the political margins. A, a free marketeer, as we'll see below, Putin's first two presidential terms combined continuing influence of oligarchs with the use of tax incentives and expansion of small and medium-sized businesses. Putin is case officer. As a talented political leader whose skills were honed in the Soviet period in the KGB of using bribery, blackmail, information control, including cyber attacks, and the extension or attempted extension of bribery, blackmail, and information control to, to the United States political system, 
perhaps via cyber attacks on Hillary Clinton's campaign and to the benefit of Donald J. Trump's bid to become president of the United States. So how useful is it to think of Putin in this way? Somewhat useful. The six personae approach makes Putin more complex. Historians and other social scientists like complexity. It makes him more com complex than catchy or yet simplistic terms such as Russia's new czar or head of the Russian mafia state. But despite its pedagogical usefulness, I think there's a problem here. And despite the fact that it makes Putin admirably more complex, there are some difficulties there. Because it tends to place Putin in a historical vacuum rather than putting Putin and his often contradictory intentions in historical, social, and cultural contexts. Another problem with this approach is this. Despite how central to Russia's political system Putin certainly is, the system, the political system in Russia today is more than just Putin. Just as Stalinism was much more, as we've learned through decades of research, than Stalin himself. So let's start to move beyond Putin to the three characterizations of, this, of the Russian political system that I introduced at the outset. First, what are the major explanations for how and why Putin, of all people, became president of the Russian Federation after the ailing and often drunken Boris Yeltsin? One view is that Putin's rise is largely an accident a position advanced by Masha Gessen in her book, The Man Without a Face, The Unlikely Rise of Vladimir Putin, published in 2012, the same year in which Putin began his, third, his term as president. The second approach is to focus on the personal and family politics of transition from Yeltsin to Putin. With Putin, in other words, infirm and increasingly incompetent, the family, that is, Boris Yeltsin's daughter and other relatives, along with second-level family, such as the oligarch Boris Berezovsky, auditioned contenders. Putin emerged as the winner. And the third major explanation is to regard Putin as part of an FSB strategy to shape, by infiltrating, one might say, from within, the policies and directions of the Russian government. Putin himself once quipped to FSB veterans in what might or might not have been a joke, comrades, our strategic mission is accomplished. We have seized power. I'd say that there's something to all of these explanations. There was nothing written in stone about Putin's rise, if, that what's, if that's what Gessen means when she said Putin became president by accident. But certainly the family and Putin's connections to Russian intelligence institutions were major factors too. It's important not to see 2000, the year in which Putin became president of the Russian Federation, as a clean break with the Yeltsin years, 
Putting it differently, many of the basic features of the political system that exists today in Russia were constructed under Yeltsin. These elements include, for example, the influence of oligarchs such as Boris Berezovsky, who, as you may know, died in London in 2013 under mysterious circumstances, Mikhail Khodorkovsky of the oil company Yukas, he's now in exile in Switzerland, Igor Sechin, head of another company, Rosneft, and Sechin is very much a political, major political and economic player in the Russian Federation today, and Yuri Kovalchuk, uh, head of Bank Russia, or the Russian bank, said to, be Russia, said to be Putin's personal bank. Their roots go back to the 1990s and even before. So too did the control of the media by government and oligarchs start during the Yeltsin year. Boris Berezovsky's control of Channel One, called Pierre Canal in Russian, is a case in point. As for the corrosion of democratic institutions, Boris Yeltsin may have stood on a tank in 1991 to defend democracy during the August coup against Gorbachev, but under his watch, the parliament, or Duma, was weakened in 1993 when, during a constitutional crisis, the Duma, or Russian White House, was bombed by tanks under Yeltsin's order with the army com and complying. Another example, example of the decline of political freedom during the Yeltsin era is the fraudulent referendum in 1993 on the constitution of the Russian, refer of, of the Russian Federation. And yet there have been significant changes or discontinuities between the Yeltsin and Putin eras, and also over the course of Putin's term as president and prime minister. This is a huge topic, and I'm just going to give you a few examples. Gone are the days of wild crony capitalism in which former Communist Party members and other elites seem to become billionaires overnight. There has been a routinization of bureaucratic management of the economy and the legal infrastructure around it. The power of some oligarchs, such as Khodorkovsky, who was arrested and jailed in 2004 for tax evasion and corruption. He was also, by that point, demonstrating political ambitions and opposition to Putin. The years of Putin's taming of the oligarchs, routinizing the tribute system, you might say, were also years of rapid growth of the Russian economy due to an oil boom, tax cuts, and pro-market reforms by, Mark, by Putin's ministers. As more money flowed in, decisions had to be made on where to spend it. And under Putin, there was a dramatic increase in state spending on police, law, and security. The FSB and other intelligence institutions and operatives, hence, became much more influential and repressive. But the economic growth during Putin's first two terms as president also allowed other units within the Russian state to grow as well. The Russian state, in fact, is now a key employer of the middle class. And those employees constitute a major social pillar of the Russian political system. 
But what exactly is that political system? What are its defining features? In the last 10 minutes of the lecture today, that's the question I want to turn to. So one possibility is to think of Russia as a managed democracy, to think of the Russian Federation with, with whom the United States under Trump has to deal uh, as, in other words, a kind of hybrid uh, political entity in which democratic processes such as elections and term limits are combined with an autocratic or authoritarian political functions. Russia's not the only managed democracy in the world. And there are different types of managed democracies. In differentiating them, a crucial question is this. Are elections free and fair? In Russia, according to many foreign observers, elections are neither free nor fair. General examples in Russia of authoritarian control of democratic processes include the following. State control of TV and other media, with some exceptions, such as Echo of Moscow, other uh, non-democratic means of control include the intermittent murder of political uh, journalists, such as Anna Politkovskaya, a Putin critic in 2006, the suppression of the press to shape political outcomes, and so forth. So how useful is the concept of managed democracy if we want to characterize the political system in Russia today? One of its strengths is that it's actually used by a Kremlin political theorist, Glev Pavlovsky. Another strength is that it analyzes contemporary Russian politics in terms of concepts of modern politics that have been applied to political systems throughout space and time, from Indonesia to the United States. Not all analysts and highly regarded analysts of the Russian political system think this is an advantage. Masha Gessen, in a widely acclaimed book, The Future is History, How Totalitarianism Reclaimed Russia, on the other hand, says the very problem that Western anal analysts have used when they've sought to understand the collapse of the Soviet system and explain the tur turn towards authoritarianism in Russia is to use Western concepts. That in itself is a problem. She critiques Stephen Kotkin's work, for example. As to what she offers, on the other hand, I'm not really convinced that she has a viable alternative, but that's another conversation. But as to how and why Russia became a managed democracy, we're usually left with unsatisfying explanations, such as escape from the chaos of the Yeltsin years and Russia's historical traditions of weak or non-existent civil society and autocratic rule. All of these, in my, to my mind, are mere assertions. They don't really function as explanations. History, the Russian and Soviet past, gets used to create a kind of timeless Russia, one that naturally defaults to an authoritarian political setting. 
history is cast too simplistically and too reflexively. You can think of this as the Matryoshka doll approach to Russian politics, where the emergence of different forms of Russian authoritarianism is just a natural and an inevitable thing, as you see in the unfolding of the Matryoshka doll uh, before us. So let's move to kleptocracy. This has gotten a lot of press. Kleptocracy, or rule by thieves, to review, is a political system controlled by political elites who have stolen public funds and public resources. Like managed democracy, kleptocracy has been applied to many political systems beyond Russia's, contemporary China, South Sudan, and even the United States. The methods of Putin's kleptocrats include the following, subverting the legal system, amassing control over banking and cultural resources, and in the process, amassing great wealth. Karen DeWish's book, Kleptocracy, does a fantastic job of demonstrating the late Soviet and 1990s roots of the tribute system over which Putin presides. Strengths. It reminds us that Russian politics is more than just about Moscow. It reminds us how important it is to, in explaining how the Russian political system works, to understanding the role of the KGB and the FSB in private business. But what, in fact, are the motivations of Putin and his co-kleptocrats? Are they driven by money, a kind of ideology of Russian nationalism? and corresponding cultural forms, or sometimes one and sometimes the others. There's also a simplistic assertion that what Putin and the kleptocrats intended to create and what they did create are one and the same. Finally, Putin's kleptocracy is too centered on Putin and the co-kleptocrats, despite their power of importance. Agency, the capacity to make choices based on conscious reflection, choices that have unpredictable consequences, is denied to regime loyalists who are rung below the ultra-elite. Those loyalists, for example, expropriate property to preserve and enhance their status. And as for the use of history and the relationship of Putin's kleptocracy to the Russian and Soviet past, we also find strengths and weaknesses. Putin's Russia as kleptocracy moves us beyond tired cliches about the authoritarianism of eternal Russia. Rather, the emergence of the kleptocracy is placed in a historical context where nothing is written in stone and contingencies matter. But this is a very stunted, shallow historical context one too restrictively focused on Dresden and St. Petersburg in the 1990s. So this brings us to the third way of understanding the political system of Putin's Russia. As, in other words, a phase in a revolutionary process that began in the late Soviet period and which is still ongoing today. 
Like other major world revolutions, those that you've learned about in France, China, and Russia in prior centuries, this revolution, which I call the Soviet Social Revolution, began not because of popular discontent from below, that certainly existed in the late Soviet period, but rather the Soviet Social Revolution, like those prior world revolutions, began when political elites, fix that in your mind, the Communist Party of the Soviet Union under Gorbachev as General Secretary of the Communist Party, launched a process of intertwined political, economic, legal, and cultural reform that inadvertently resulted in state breakdown, in part because of conflicts between political elites. This is the process that you got to read about in Stephen Kotkin's work. Reforms under Gorbachev, such as the creation of limited aspects of a market system, for example, the 1988 law on cooperatives, and the introduction of electoral politics, elections in 1989 televised to the Congress of People's Deputies, led not, as Gorbachev intended, to the revitalization of the system, but to the creation of alternative institutional structures and channels of authority that tore the Soviet Union and Soviet communism apart. This was a social as opposed to a purely political revolution, that is, merely a change in political structures, because of the process of state breakdown resulted in a fundamental transformation of politics, society, and economy and culture in an extremely compressed time frame. There's never been a world revolution in which the popular democratic forces unleashed during state breakdown were not, at least in the short term, replaced by a new revolutionary phase in which old elites sought to regain influence and power through the consolidation of new institutions. And you can think of Putin, for example, as an old elite as someone who came up through the Soviet system and uh, held high positions in the KGB. Like other major world revolutions, the Soviet Social Revolution needs to be set in global context. That is, just as state breakdown in the French Revolution was in part due to economic overextension because of foreign wars, so too was the Soviet Social Revolution in part a product of the economic competition of the Cold War. And just as the new regime, that re new regimes that replaced the Chinese, French, and Russian old regimes were more centralized than the ones that they had toppled, so too is the political system in Russia today in some ways more centralized and more highly institutionalized than was the Soviet state and the Soviet system in the late Soviet period. So by thinking of Putin's Russia, where yes, elements of managed democracy coexist with kleptocracy, as a phase in a Soviet social revolution, we've put contemporary Russia into a much larger framework. 
we've gotten beyond cliches about eternal Russia as a series of inevitable authoritarianisms as a result of entrenched patterns of weak civil society, autocratic political culture, immature democratic culture, of Russia as not a country of laws, but of understandings. We've created an opportunity to place the Soviet collapse and the rise of Putin, moments or phases in what I've called the Soviet social revolution, in a global context of the transnational and multidirectional flow of capital, ideas, goods, and people. We've brought in our historical understanding of the resurgence of old elites beyond just a post-1991 strategy of the FSB, the former KGB, to infiltrate the organs of state power. So my thinking here is part of a larger book project. There are definitely pitfalls to avoid, as well as opportunities, pitfalls being not shoehorning, resisting the temptation to shoehorn the Soviet past into established categories from the French Revolution, say, which, which you may uh, have studied, and to combine a kind of explanation of the Soviet collapse, the Soviet social revolution, as an unintentional enfolding of structural processes or relations between enduring relations, between patterns of relations, between groups and societies with human agency or conscious action based on rational reflection that produces contingent results. Before I conclude, I want to just say something, since this is 2017 and the year of the 100th year anniversary of the two revolutions that include, occurred in Russia in 1917, I want to say something about the following issue. How might we mesh the interpretation that I just gave you of Russia's authoritarian turn as a Soviet social revolution with the way that the Bolshevik Revolution, the second of the two revolutions, has been commemorated in Russia today. So if you've been following the news, you know that the big news about the centenary of 1917 in Russia is that it has been a non-event. What the big news is, is that 1917 has been out of the news. So has Lenin. As you can see in these, issue, these images, which I've borrowed from a presentation that I just heard at a conference of Madrid, of monuments that have been constructed in 1917. Even one to Stalin. In Chelyabinsk and the Urals, one to Stolypin, prime minister in the Russian Empire after the revolution of 1905 to 1917, a reformer but also a practitioner of terror. Terror. Dzerzhinsky, founder of the Cheka, or the first Bolshevik secret police. No Lenin. No Lenin here either. 
This is a tattoo of somebody in prison. Uh, on the left, you see Nicholas II. On the right, I'm sure you all recognize Joseph Stalin. So Lenin has been absent in recent celebrations of uh, the 1917 revolution in Russia. Nor have there been big parades, uh, were there big parades at all in Red Square, in Moscow. Uh, and in fact, what, what Putin inserted in, 19, in 2005 to replace uh, the yearly celebration of the October Revolution was the Day of Reconciliation or Unity in early November. So why is this? A hypothesis, which is just that, a hypothesis, is that it's because to acknowledge Lenin's revolutionary role and to have commemorated the 1917 revolutions, especially the Bolshevik Revolution, would have ob obliged Russia to acknowledge that they themselves are part of an ongoing revolutionary process. Again, this is a, just a hypothesis. It's not something that I've clearly uh, tested. So what we've done today then is to examine the big question of how we explain Vladimir Putin's authoritarian turn in Russia, how we explain the emergence of yet another form of Russian authoritarianism centered around Vladimir Putin's personal power, in answer to that question, one can say scholars are working on it. Russian specialists have been much better at generating flashy, catchy concepts like mafia state, kleptocracy, managed democracy, than in really explaining how and why authoritarianism has, has come to be in Russia. What I've suggested is that we need a much deeper understanding of history and a much broader conceptual framework if we want to understand how and why uh, a new type of authoritarianism has emerged in Russia today. So that's all I have to say. And I'd be happy to take uh, questions. Okay, let me take let me take all of them. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so let me take these in reverse order. All I can say is this. Given the capacities that Putin's Russia has in terms of cybersecurity, given the the skills that Putin himself developed, but also a lot of other KGB agents developed uh, in terms of not just cyber meddling, but information control. It's highly possible that not only that Putin was the mastermind of this or one of the key architects of this, this attempt, but that there was collusion between Russia and the Trump administration. That said, 
I do agree with Masha Gessen that the most important thing is to remember that it's Americans who elected Trump. And even though I think it's very important to know that whether in how deep the, in the attempts to interfere with um, um, the American electoral process on the part of Russia went, and whether in fact Trump officials and perhaps Trump himself knowingly accepted Russian aid, I think the important thing for Americans to confront is that Americans voted for Trump. Russia is often a kind of mirror for American anxieties. Uh, it's, it's, there are all kinds of books about this from the 19th, late 19th century, early 20th century. So that, I think, is the key point. Uh, as to linking, the excellent question of linking the, the attempt to interfere on Russia's part with American, the electoral process, and the, the model of the Soviet so social revolution, and Putin's Russia, and the current political system as a kind of phase in revolutionary consolidation, I would say that in all revolutionary consolidations, as the, the term indicates, there's a desire to protect the centralized system that has emerged from a, a revolutionary process that's largely unintentional and involuntary and not really based on uh, a conscious ideology. It's very clear, and that's why I want to see you to see the, the video, that for Putin, the collapse of the Soviet Union was a traumatic event. And I think that he, I'm guessing here, but I think that he experienced it as something of a personal humiliation. So I think that you, on the part of, let's, of the architects of whatever cybersecurity influence in Russian, in American electoral processes existed, this, this, is, was, this is, can be seen, linking it with the revolutionary consolidation model, as a kind of attempt to protect the institutional framework that Putin, but not just Putin, so many others, who share a lot of his core values, have done so much to create, in the sense that they certainly saw Hillary Clinton as a threat to, to Russia, and have seen, as well, the extension of NATO uh, into Eastern Europe and the attempted extension into Ukraine as a kind of existential threat for the Russian Federation. So the last question as to what's gonna happen in the next two to five years, a disclaimer, I'm a historian. I study the past. What I've heard Russians themselves say, but one has to take this with a grain of salt, because just because you're living in Russia today doesn't mean you can predict the future. It's all based on, your predictions are based on your actual experience and your ways of viewing the world is that Putin's system is not gonna last. 
I think one thing that we are clearly in for, and I'll end with this, is two to five more years of uh, the attempts of Russia to interfere in US political processes and in political processes in Europe, Western Europe, to create disorder in those political systems as a way of defending the Russian Federation and protecting the political system that exists in Russia today. So thanks for the questions. These are great questions. And feel free to email me with any questions you have.